10. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I've made several mistakes this morning. One, the campus outreach group is not from Michigan. Why didn't you say something? They're from Minnesota. See, down here in the south, you're all from up there. It starts with an M. We were close. They're from Minnesota, not Michigan. So if you prayed for the group from Michigan, God knew what you meant. But that is a perfect illustration to start Romans chapter 10 with. And I wish I could tell you I did it on purpose. I didn't. I want to describe somebody to you, and don't point at me because it applies to me this morning, but you know people that, kind of like I was, I was playing golf with a group of guys and a bird flew over, and somebody said, I wonder what kind of bird that was, and I named somebody's name. I said, well, I bet so-and-so would know because he was always naming birds. And, and somebody commented, yeah, off and wrong, but never in doubt. You know, it's that type person, and don't be elbowing people sitting next to you, but it's that type of person that just have a lot of enthusiasm and just kind of go full on and just you know, spout information as if it's correct, and it's not. Call people from Minnesota and say they're from Michigan. Often wrong, but never in doubt. Thank you, for thank you. Ricky looked over at me and said, I thought they were from Minnesota. I was like, they are. What did I say? <laughs> Let's look at this chapter then of, of Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read the first three verses, but just to give you context. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is really pouring his heart out to his own people, and that is to the Jewish people. And in chapter 9, we saw that Paul made this startling statement. He said, I almost wish, I wish that I could sacrifice myself for their benefit. In other words, Paul said, I would be willing to be accursed if I knew that my Jewish family and relatives and friends and Brothers from that background could come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and come to faith in Christ. And we know that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome. And so in chapter 10, you're going to see him refer to them. And so let's start with the first three verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Brethren, who's Paul talking to? Paul's talking to the church at Rome. He's talking to a group of people. Some of them were from a Jewish background. We know that the church at Rome was established. There were people from Rome in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the disciples preached and, and from all over the world. And so people went back home. So the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, got carried back to Rome and the church was growing in Rome. And so some of the people in Rome would have been from a Jewish background. Many of those would have been just Gentiles, Greek background, and had come to Christ. And so when Paul says brethren, he's talking now on a spiritual Christian sense. I'm talking to my brothers in Christ. And I'm talking about them. My heart's desire. My earnest prayer. I mean, Paul illustrates his heart's desire by what he's already said in chapter 9. And that is, I'd give anything if they could know Christ. You're going to hear the word heart used throughout this passage. And you've got to know, it's more in Paul's mind, it's more in the mind of the people that he's writing than just a muscle that pumps blood. They saw the heart 
as really the inmost part of a person. It's, it's the seat of their intellect and emotions and will and really to the very core of their being. And so Paul's saying, to the very core of my being, I wish they would come to faith in Christ. My, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for their salvation. I want to ask you even here at the beginning, is there somebody that God's laid on your heart to pray for, for their salvation? Maybe you're saying, you know what, I haven't lately prayed for that, but even now that you mention it, God's kind of bringing a name to my mind. I just want to ask you to jot that name down and make that part of your agreement with Paul that we're praying for the salvation of people that need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I wish that we had that same kind of passion for that that Paul did. My heart's desire, my prayer to God, literally a pleading of entreaty, a persistent pleading before God. You see, Paul didn't hold a grudge. Paul is praying for people who had become enemies of him. Read the book of Acts and you find that many of the people Paul were praying for were the ones that beat him and put him into jail and told him to quit preaching. Many of them were the ones who had maligned the Savior that Paul was praying they'd come to know. And the human response to that would simply be, well, okay then, just remember this conversation in hell. But that was not Paul's heart. Paul's heart was not, well, you're going to get what you deserve. Paul's heart was, I really pray that the folks who are from my background, my lineage, would come to faith. Jesus Christ. His heart's desire, his earnest prayer was for their salvation. Now understand something. When Paul was speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, remember what he said as they're talking about worship? He finally says to her, woman, believe me, there's a time coming, in fact it now is, when you won't worship the Father in that mountain or this mountain. Her salvation comes from the Jews. Paul understood the significance of the Old Testament that the Jewish people had missed and that was, yes, Messiah is coming, but He has come. In fact, Paul says they have a zeal for God. Literally, the word really means hot or heat. We get the word perhaps enthusiasm from that. He says they have an incredible enthusiasm for God. The only problem is their enthusiasm is misplaced. Their zeal is misplaced. In fact, Paul had a zeal for God. Paul, before he became Paul, before he came to Christ, was Saul. And he had a zeal. The thing that, that his zeal played out in is he persecuted Christians. He chased Christians all over the known world to bring them back for trial. Until he has that experience on the Damascus Road with Jesus where Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul understood zeal, but he understood misplaced zeal. And listen to it again. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Let that sink in. Paul is saying that their knowledge has fallen short. In fact, there's two words for knowledge in Scripture. There's gnosis, which is just kind of knowledge of intellect. Just you got the facts right. And then there's a deeper knowledge, a heartfelt knowledge, an epignosis, which means spiritual discernment. Paul says these folks are as zealous as they can be. They're sincere. They're just sincerely wrong. Unfortunately, to the Jew, it had become a pride thing. The pride thing said this, we've got all the answers. The problem is they had missed the one answer that they really needed. 
And that was that Messiah had come. Not knowing about God's righteousness. In other words, being ignorant of what God has done. They have sought to establish their own. What had they done? Here's what the Jews had done. The Jews had taken the Old Testament law, which Paul has pointed out in Romans, should have pointed them to their need for a Savior. It should have pointed them to the fact that I cannot keep the law. Apart from Christ, I'm nothing more than a sinner separated from God. And trying to keep the law will never get me there because I can't do that. That's what sin means. The real definition of sin means missing the mark. It means everything you attempted to hit the bullseye of God's righteousness fell short. You missed it. That's what the Jews do. They took the infinitely holy standard of God and replaced it with their own human standard. And they just basically said, if we can do a good enough job of keeping the law, in fact, if we could just reduce it to just a few things and just try to keep this handful of laws, I believe that's what the man was after when he asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? I think by that time he'd gotten to the point where if you'll just tell me the greatest commandment, I'll keep that one, and by keeping that one, I'll be pleasing to God. They missed it. They replaced the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ with their own human effort. They refused God's way and didn't subject themselves to God. Instead, chose to reduce the standard of God down to something they thought they could keep. So that's Paul's prayer for salvation. Then look at the message of salvation. What an awesome passage. Beginning just the last word of verse 8, Paul's talking about the word of faith which we are preaching, and then continue in verse 9. Here's what he's preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul has just described this word of faith, and then he's come to what it is. This word of faith, this message that calls for faith is what we are preaching, a present verb. This is what we continue to do. Paul and the other disciples were constantly, without fail, preaching the message of Christ, even when it cost them something, when it cost them their freedom or their life. Somebody else continued to preach it when they were told by the leadership, you can't say that anymore. They still do it. They still did it. And he said, here's what we're preaching. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you read commentaries on those two things, they'll tell you, seems like they're kind of out of order. Seems like you've got to do one without the other. And I, th I think they're simply saying is they fit together because he kind of corrects it in the next alignment and does put it, the belief comes and then the confession comes. What does it mean to confess when he says you must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord? To confess means to speak the same thing. It means to assent or agree with God. So what's Paul saying? He's saying if you understand what God has done and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Folks, the people that he's writing to, to confess that Jesus is Lord would be an absolute break, a radical break 
it would have cost him something to say that. I've grown up in the South. That's why I don't know where Michigan and Minnesota are. But I've heard too many testimonies where our testimonies are, well, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and then later on I made Him my Lord. It doesn't work that way. I understand what you mean. I think in simple childlike faith, I trusted Christ at 12 years old to be my Savior. I really didn't understand lordship, but let me tell you something. When Christ comes into your life, He comes in to take over. He is your Lord. Listen to this. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Savior about ten times. He's referred to as Lord 700 times. In fact, that whole thing about I made Jesus Lord, Acts says that God made Him Lord. You don't. He is Lord. You don't decide whether He is or not. He is. So when you trust Him as your Savior, folks, you've trusted Him also as Lord. Lord means supreme in authority. It means He's the boss. He's in charge. And He begins a work in you that He's promised to finish. So when you confess that Jesus is Lord, that's a big deal. When you believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead, it's more than just saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus raised from the dead. What you're confessing by saying that He's Lord, you understand all that's encompassed in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. And that when three days later God raised Him from the dead, He not only conquered sin, but He conquered death and the grave forever. That's good news. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He has been raised from the dead. Now, you know what? Most of us in this room don't have a problem saying that. But the people that Paul was writing about could not bring themselves to say that. In fact, especially something he's going to say right after this would particularly disturb them. But let me just say, Philippians chapter 2 says this, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. What do they confess? That Jesus has the name that is above every other that He is Lord. You know what that means? That means people that in this life refuse to acknowledge Him as Lord one day will have to. Will have to bow their knee. That also includes Satan. Don't know what his knees look like, but there's coming a day when he's going to have to hit the ground and acknowledge what he's refused to acknowledge. And that is that He's not Lord. That Jesus is Lord. In fact, the Bible says the demons believe the demons are monotheists. They, they believe in God. They're creationists. They were there when the world was created. They saw it happen. They know God created it. But it says they shudder. Why? Because they know what's coming. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, I love this. It doesn't say you got a good chance. <laughs> Why do people go through life thinking, well, are you going to heaven? Well, I hope so. I've got a 50-50 chance. It's not going to come down to a coin toss in heaven. But I think some people think that. I got a, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm 95% sure. Why do you want to go through life 95% sure? When the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. Then listen to what Paul says. With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth a person confesses, resulting in salvation. Righteousness has to do with what we become righteous. Salvation has to do with what we escape 
let me just take a side note here. When we're sharing Christ with people, why is it we spend all of our time just talking about what they're going to escape? Why don't we spend more of our time talking about the holiness of God? Yeah, we need to talk to them about the fact that apart from Christ, they're condemned eternally to be separated from God. But folks, the offer is for righteousness. Not just for what we escape, but it's for what we receive. And whoever believes will not be disappointed. Now here's what's going to upset some people. He says there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Why did he say that? I just, I just love the fact that Paul speaks the truth. But the people who read this, if they started to believe, well, maybe, okay, maybe. I don't like those other people, but okay, I'm going to... And then he says there's no distinction. Listen, a lot of Jewish men began every morning with this prayer. Thank God I wasn't born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. When a Jewish man went on a trip and came back home, when he got back to the Holy Land, he would take his robe and shake the dust off. He wouldn't enter the home of a Gentile. He wouldn't shake the hand of a Gentile. Why? Because they're down here and I'm up here. And I'm not preaching to a lot of Jews this morning. But let me just say, I see that attitude at times even in the church. You know why lost people act like lost people? Because they're lost. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and I'd get phone calls occasionally because one of my kids had done something. Not one of my biological children. But just things like we saw one of your youth. It was always one of my youth. It wasn't one of their kids. It was one of my youth. We saw him smoking around the side of the building last night. I thought, I wonder where they got that from. Why do we expect lost people to act like they're not lost? They are. Does your heart break over people's lostness or do you just want to separate yourself? Do you just want to kind of get in a holy huddle? Or do you say, oh God, I pray that they would come to know the Jesus that I know. That's Paul's prayer. That's Paul's heart's desire. There's no distinction. In fact, he said he is the same Lord. He's Lord of all. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me close in with this last point, and that is simply the method of salvation, verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Paul gives us several little questions of how is this going to happen. In what way will it happen? How are they going to call? How are they going to invoke this name of Jesus if they've never heard? If they've never believed? And then how will they believe if they've never heard? The word believe means to entrust one's spiritual well-being to Jesus. Again, we're not just with this gnosis this knowledge that he exists but it is that he's lord and that he's risen from the dead how will they do that if they have not heard and how will they hear without a preacher
Let me tell you, the word preacher means to herald, to proclaim. Don't get this confused with what happens at some churches at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. This message is not just written to professional preachers. It's written to all of us who are to herald the good news. And then he says this, how beautiful, he quotes this passage from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those. Why did he pick that body part? Think about it. People he's writing to, you walked everywhere you went. By the time you got wherever you went, your feet needed washing. They were dirty and probably smelly. So how were they beautiful? It's because they were bringing a message that you desperately needed. One of the pictures of this I got was in Ukraine. This is a Ukrainian Bible. One of the things we did when I was over there was passed out Bibles. And i got to tell you, I was over there in July. It was 100 degrees. It was hot. And I went out with a group of Ukrainian teenagers. And they would run from door to door, passing Bibles out. And when they handed the Bible to the person, the person would break down and cry. And I thought, my God. Number one, the teenagers I know would have been complaining about how hot it was and would have been saying things like, I, had, I hit the last house, you hit the next one. The reason they were running with the Bible is because they wanted to be the one to tell the good news. And the reason those people broke down and cried is they didn't have a Bible. Now let me show you how stupid I am. I brought one home as a souvenir. It didn't occur to me until I got on the plane and I was over the ocean that I realized we've been spending a lot of money to get Bibles into the Ukraine. I just took one out. How smart is that? What am I saying? Folks, when people don't know the good news, it's good news when they hear it. And if you've gotten to the place where it's become so common to you, pray that God would break your heart to understand that there are people that if they don't know Jesus will spend eternity separated from Him. I want to quote going to quote someone. I'll find it in a minute. How will they call on those whom they haven't believed? One of the things I appreciate, I got to hear a guy speak about a year and a half ago. His name's David Platt. And in the message, if you've read the book, Radical, we just did chapter 7 with our staff this year, this, uh, this week. And chapter 7 was basically the message that he preached. And I just sat there for about an hour listening to him speak. And I realized... He was quoting Romans. He got up to Romans 10, and he, I realized he hadn't looked down. He's not looking at notes. He's not looking at his Bible. He's quoting the book of Romans. He got to Romans 10, and he did something that I love. He does it in chapter 7 of this book, and I, I commend this to you if you haven't read it. But he kind of turned this backwards. And so I want to close that way today and just ask this question. Look, look at this slide. Basically, from Romans 10, here's some truths. God sends His servants. His servants preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Not everybody that hears is going to believe. Believers call. Everyone who calls is saved. Where's the breakdown? 
Do we believe that it's true that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? That's what Romans says. Do we believe that believers will call, the ones that hear and believe that He's Lord, that He's risen from the dead, that they will call then on the name of the Lord? Yeah, Romans says so. Do we believe that the people that hear that will believe? Well, you've got to hear it to believe. Not everybody that hears it is going to believe, but you've got to hear it to believe it. Do we believe His servants preach? I think that's where the breakdown is. God has called His servants to go and share the good news. And folks, if people hear the good news, some are going to believe. And the ones that believe are going to call on the name of the Lord. And the ones who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're waiting for a professional preacher to do that for you, you've missed the point of Romans. You've missed the point of what Paul's saying here. These aren't the hired guns that do it. It's not you taking somebody to hear somebody share it. It's you telling people where you are. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, I just, number one, if it scares you to get up in front of a large group of people, that's okay. That's really not what Romans is calling you for. I get scared. I think when I'm up here preaching, I think everybody's looking at me. But to herald does not mean you have a thousand people. It doesn't even mean you've got ten people. It simply means you're making an announcement, and it could be one-on-one. Pray for those kind of opportunities because I promise you they're all around us. Pray for the opportunity. And you're saying, well, I don't know everything. Neither do I. So where do you start? Just tell somebody what God's done for you. Walk them through some verses in Romans. Go get a tract. But if nothing else, just say, hey, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know this much. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on the cross for you. And through faith in Him, you can have eternal life. Take into Romans 10, 9 and 10. How will they preach unless they are sent? However, not all heeded. But verse 17 concludes, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. This morning you've heard the message. My question for you is, how do you respond? There may be somebody here this morning that's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God right now is penetrating your heart with the truth of His Word. And He's calling you to Himself. If He's doing that, I invite you to respond. I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a minute. There's a lot of you, if I'd asked when I started, how many of you are believers? How many of you placed faith in Jesus Christ? Most of you would have raised your hand. If that's the truth then what are you doing with the good news that's been entrusted to you? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to close this in prayer, but before I do, let me just speak to you while you're not looking at somebody else. For some of you, maybe you've grown up in church, you've gone to church your whole life, and maybe you've even heard this sermon preached before. But this morning... God has touched your heart. I invite you to respond. I don't have a magical prayer, but right where you're sitting, you could say to God, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm separated from Christ. And I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me to pay the penalty for my sin. So today, I ask you, to forgive me of my sin 
and to be my Lord and Savior. You can do that right where you're sitting. One of the things that Jesus tells us to do if we do that is to tell somebody, to confess it to people. We're not a church, so we don't do come forward invitations where you join this church. But if you're here with a group, I invite you. Even during this closing song, just slip over to somebody and just say, hey, I, I just prayed that prayer. Or maybe you want to say to somebody, hey, could you tell me more? Because I sense God's telling me that I don't know Him and I'd really like to know the other part of you. How's your feet? Are you taking the news of Jesus Christ to other people? Would you, between you and God right now, pray this prayer. God, show me who you want me to tell about Jesus. And start praying for those people. Asking God for opportunities. And then when opportunities come, just tell them what you know. Father, that is my prayer. God, we join with the Apostle Paul and pray for the salvation of folks who don't know you. And God, I pray that we would be faithful like Paul. God, that you would break our heart over lostness around us. And that, God, we would tell people about Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.